welcome to Consumer Choice Radio. We're broadcasting on the Big Talker, 1067 FM out of Wilmington, North Carolina, as we do every single Saturday at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. I'm one half of your co-host, Yael Osofsky, broadcasting to you from Vienna, Austria. Things are warming up here, looking nice. And I'm joined, as always, by my colleague who's there on the mic in Toronto, Ontario, David Clement. David, sir, how goes it? It's going well. It's going well. The weather is nice. People are getting outside. Um, yeah, no complaints. It's uh, Things are starting to feel a little less stressful um, in comparison to the last three or four months. So uh, things are looking up. Well, that's good. I know there's been a lot of changes for a lot of people and uh, a lot of arguments. Um, article, I guess we could, we could start talking. Before we dive in, though, um, obviously, if you're listening to this program live on the radio... Thanks for tuning in. If you are listening on the podcast version, thank you as well. Please do rank our podcast there in the Apple iTunes store or whatever device you're using. You can find that at consumerchoiceradio.com. Um, so, yeah, we're back at it. Had a great interview with Fleming Rose last week, which I think went very well and uh, definitely learned a lot there, David. It was pretty good for the times. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, given all of the the uh, the conversations about speech and expression, we thought that he would be a good guest, and the feedback from that was that he was, and so happy to happy to give our audience uh, some new voices to hear from in terms of the various issues that we discuss. Yeah, and I think having uh, Fleming on, uh, you know, hopefully. People can go back to his book, uh, which we promoted very heavily. I think I held it up during the interview at least three times. <laughs> Hopefully he's very happy with that. My publisher will be very happy with this. Um, so, yeah, I think that, that went very well. And we have now cataloged all of the different interviews that we've had because uh, we do put things up on YouTube um, for you guys to follow if you want to have a video version of the various interviews that we do. So there are the YouTube video versions. We have them on Facebook as well. And uh, we're trying to use Instagram Live. Um, Instagram Live is a bit finicky. It's a bit strange. It's a bit weird. It's kind of hard to get used to, David. I don't know if you've messed around with it personally, but, man, it's uh, – it's, it's definitely tough, but this is the kind of thing. I think there, there are a lot of people who are now getting their info on Instagram, so we definitely want to be sure that we can reach the right people there. Yeah, it is. It, is a, a, it can be a, a pretty particular platform to try and navigate for those type of videos. Makes you have a makes you have a new respect for all the hashtag influencers out there. Yeah, I mean, to, I, they uh, must be taking classes or something. There must be a master class on this <laughs> stuff because it's pretty tough, and you know, I think we, we've been doing this a while. We're pretty experienced, and, and we do a lot of this in our day-to-day -day work. But, man, navigating the dimensions and figuring out what kind of content you got to put there and the gigabytes. And, I mean, this is uh, this is professional work here at Consumer Choice Radio. So we're uh, very thankful to the back office. Um, Are we is, old now? Yeah. Does that make us old if we're like, wow, this Instagram thing is hard to figure out? Well, it's more like putting video on there and doing the TV because they are doing a lot of changes. Um, but that's yeah. what you do. You know, you're trying to appease the consumers. And look, this is a platform that is trying to make money. So they're figuring out the best way they can kind of get the advertisers in the door and have people click on stuff, which I totally get. I totally understand. We do Instagram ads as well. So I understand that perspective. But man, is it tough. Oof. Yeah, 
So those of you who have no idea what we're talking about, don't worry. Keep listening <laughs> on the radio, 106.7 FM, Big Talker. Um, so David, you brought a couple of things here to the table um, yes, that you wanted to discuss and talk about. I think there's been plenty that's been happening in uh, the state of North Carolina where this program is broadcast, but across the country and indeed across the world. I'll get into some EU stuff a bit later because I think it's very pertinent yep. for a lot of Americans who want to go and uh, visit and it looks like it's not going to be uh, not going to be possible this year. But. No, yeah, it doesn't look like it. Um, I mean, well, I, the t- two big things. I guess the first big thing I, I wanted to um, to dive back into, which we really haven't talked about in a while, is presidential politics. I mean, you and I were going back and forth on the primaries on the Democratic side as things were developing. Then COVID hit. Um, and it just seemed like over the overnight, the discussion of Biden versus Trump, for the most part, really took a back seat to everything else that was going on. Um, so, yeah, I, I wanted to chat with you about uh, about the polls. Uh, we have a clip that we'll play in just a moment here um, that kind of tees that up for us. So, Jamie, roll the uh, roll the Biden polling clip. A White House welcome tonight for the president of Poland. President Trump holding his first face-to-face meeting with the world leader since the pandemic prompted global lockdowns. I think it's uh, a great honor, and frankly, Poland's a country we have a tremendous relationship with, and I have a very good personal relationship with the president. The White House hopeful that a return to a regular schedule will help signal the country's readiness to reopen, even as the coronavirus crisis ravages much of the nation coming just as new polling has President Trump trailing his Democratic rival, Joe Biden. A New York Times poll showing Biden leading Trump nationally by 14 percentage points, and with an advantage among women and non-white voters, while also making inroads with some traditionally Republican-leaning groups. A separate poll showing Biden up by eight points in the all-important battleground state of Wisconsin. Former President Barack Obama warning Democrats not to get too confident about Biden's polling lead. We can't be complacent or smug or sense that somehow um, it's so obvious that this president hasn't done a good job um, because, look, he he won once. Obama on Tuesday night in his first appearance on the 2020 virtual campaign trail alongside his former VP. Do you want your kids to grow up to have the same value set that Donald Trump has? Both President Trump and Joe Biden set to visit key battleground states tomorrow. The president heading to Wisconsin, Biden traveling to Pennsylvania with a focus. Wow. So um, I had seen a clip, I think, of Obama, um, who's on all black, by the way. So he's got a new retirement digs. Um, So I I saw like small clips, but it hasn't. I don't know. Maybe it didn't spread too wide. Maybe the algorithms have swallowed my entire social media timeline, but I didn't yeah. see many people talking about this or sharing this. I, I, maybe people are a bit too distracted right now, or, or I, I don't know. I'm not sure about yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing that gets me, so there's, there's always these headlines that are talking about how, how big Biden's national lead is. And it's like, guys, Biden's national lead means nothing. The entire state of California and New York, all 100% of the electorate, could vote for Joe Biden, and it would have no difference in terms of the Electoral College um, and how that shapes up. You, you have to look at state by state, and you have to look at 
county by county and district by district in order to really see how this is going to play out. And so I think you could hear it in Obama's voice where he's telling he's I mean, you can't see it in, in you can't uh, see it um, be, unless you look the clip up afterwards. But he's actually in like a webinar with Joe Biden. And he says that. Welcome to the so webinar. Yeah, he's he's sitting there with Joe saying, like, don't get complacent, don't do what Hillary did. Um, so I think that there's there's like some pretty serious concerns there that the Dems are going to maybe rest on their laurels a little bit too much and underestimate um, Trump's ability to to do well in those battleground states, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Florida, Ohio, where it matters and really where the election will come down to. So um just it, it right now it feels very much like the last election it feels a lot like there could be another potential surge and upset um and so it's uh, it's interesting to see where that will go what's your take i mean how do you how do you see this going do you see like some people have been like oh it's going to be a biden landslide i don't know yeah and i think there there are additional barriers i mean uh We'll talk, we'll talk about this a bit later, but there are other states where, you know, they're locking down again and people are not going to be allowed to congregate. Uh, a lot of people are just too scared, I think, to go out anyway. Um, I think if, if you were to poll, you know, 100% of the American populace, I don't know how many know that you can actually vote by, by mail, by, by absentee ballot. Um, they've, it seems as if the Republicans are making it a bit harder uh, maybe I'm, I'm reading the New York Times there a bit too much, and I'm a bit too much in lefty land. But from what I can tell, they are trying to clamp down whenever states are trying to do mail-in ballots, which, by the way, is how everybody votes in the state of Oregon and in the state of Washington. And I think it's fine. <laughs> it's been a too big of an issue. Um, but I'll, actually, I'll actually disagree with you there. That, um, uh, that it's not a big deal or what's up? Yeah, so I, I mean, I'm still on the fence. I'm not sure if I'm 100% convinced that that full mail-in ballots are a bad idea. But uh, for a tight election, we've already seen, I think it was just Pennsylvania um, and another state where late ballots, the amount of late ballots that um, got in, now they extended the deadline to count them, so they will be counted. But the amount of late ballots that came in exceeded the margin of Trump's victory in that state in the last election. So we're going to have a, a election night that I think will be much more similar to Florida uh, in Bush Gore, where nobody knows what's going to go on. They're going to basically have to battle over each individual vote, um, especially if it's tight in some of these states, because uh, I know that some of the more um reserved or i mean in many senses uh respectful and accurate polling companies um actually don't put biden's lead in some of these states uh, beyond two or three points um yeah and that's within and so, the margin of error so yeah yeah and so if you if you have 70,000 votes showing up late and the margin for biden to win or trump to win is 30 or 40,000 like it was in Wisconsin. Um, what do you do? Yeah. Do you, do you count them? How are they stamped? And I know that some states have figured this out, but I think we're starting to see in where these primaries were that 
it is getting complicated and because there's like overlapping jurisdictions where state bodies are responsible for administering some of this and they all have different rules i think it's going to be pretty messy and i my prediction at least right now beyond who's going to win is that you we may not know who the president is on election night democracy Uh, is messy david (laughs) exactly i think uh well two points to that first you know I'll, i'll uh i'll rebut you uh, second point. But first point is with the polls, what was it? Biden's up 12% or something nationally. Um, I agree it's total garbage. What these polls do specifically at this point in June, this is signaling and this is signaling to the people in the Trump campaign who are responsible for ads. And the signaling is, hey, you're not spending enough money right now. <laughs> you have not unleashed your war chest um, because this is the strange things about election time is that Trump derides the fake news all day, but the newspapers, the news outlets, the online media, they're so reliant on political advertising that they kind of need these politicians to show up every couple of months and drop a bunch of money to attack their opponent or do whatever. Now, why Trump was good at this in the first time around is that he got earned media. So he just had all the talking heads just chattering about Trump all day. So he had he didn't have to spend that much money because everybody was talking about him and he was living rent-free in everyone's head. This time, I don't know. And the reason I brought up not being able to vote and the mail-in stuff is, you know, a lot of states, you might not have the same availability of polling places. It might be a bit harder. Um, I know for me, I've only done absentee the last 10 years or something. I think I only voted in person once, <laughs> everything yeah. else. I know I've, I've kind of been uh, bouncing around, but... Yeah, I'm not sure. I think most people don't care right now. I think there's a lot of uh, competing sort of political narratives. And I think there's a renewed focus, which I think we would celebrate on local races and local, uh, you know, issues, things that are happening at the state level. There's a lot more focus there. And, uh, you know, if we go back to Killer Mike there, uh, whatever it was in Atlanta about a month ago now, you know, he said, hey, if you're not happy with how things are going in your town, you know, look at the district attorney. Look at the people that you elect locally. These are the people who are actually impacting your life day to day, not necessarily everybody at the top. So, yeah. Well, yeah, that's I mean, that's a great point, because it's the 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 level of government that has the highest impact on your day to day life is the level of government that citizens are usually the least engaged in. I mean, not not many people vote in their local city elections or whoever else they're voting for, or they don't really care or they're very apathetic, um, which is fine. Uh, I don't blame people for being apathetic. We all have busy lives, but at the same time, these are the people who are like deciding what your property tax rates are and determining the direction of local law enforcement and education and all that. Yeah. Yeah. There's a great uh, documentary and I don't say that very often, but there's a great documentary by vice, And they did one in Charlotte, North Carolina, and this was about the makeup of the city council. Um, There was a shooting, if you guys remember, a few years ago in Charlotte, and that really, it was a police shooting of an unarmed black man, and that rivaled up a lot of people. People were very upset about that, and people did turn out, and they voted for specific city council candidates who were activists. You know, these guys had no political experience, and now they're trying to overturn a lot of the very bad local legislation sometimes is very good legislation and uh, you see the the front of education is like number one 
So they're talking about charter schools. They're talking about all kinds of different stuff. And that's like, it was actually great to see that people are discussing this and talking about it. And people kind of know who their local representatives are in the city council. I, I don't think that's the a f- very true fact for most people in the country, but you do see that in, in a lot of communities. So, you know, I think that's a, a good trend that people are at least talking about stuff locally. Um, when it comes to the federal stuff, I mean, come on, these, these are the garbage uh, piles of, you know, heaping piles of garbage that you have as your two candidates and two main candidates. Eh. I don't think too many people are happy there. Well, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it also raises some concerns or questions about the police reform bills that are being passed back and forth at the federal level between uh, the Democrats and the Republicans, because that's a good segue. You want to talk about those? Have you uh, followed that a little bit? Yeah, I have a little bit. I, I mean, the way in which I understand it is that they agree upon about 70% and they disagree on 30% and there are some kind of minute details. But um, I kind of fall more into the category of worrying that this is largely symbolic rather than um, actually having any meaningful impact. And that's mm-hmm. mostly just because many of these things are not handled by the federal government yeah they're not federal jurisdiction yeah um yeah there may be some funding um questions uh but it's not federal jurisdiction in any serious way uh so all they can really do is just dangle a carrot of money and training and whatnot um it has to be done more so at the state level and some in some senses the local level so it just seems um like it may it may fall into something we look back on months and months from now and say, okay, well, this sounded really good, but it didn't have much in terms of teeth and it didn't really accomplish much either. So one, one bill that I think is, is the focus for a lot of people comes from our, um, the fellow Carolinian, Tim Scott, who's a Senator, a Republican. He was the one who wrote the version of the Senate police reform bill and, you know, had small things like banning chokeholds. I mean, I don't super, I don't think that's super effective and you know, when you're in the moment, I don't know if we should have uh, X, Y rules to kind of confine police that they have to think. I mean, there's like a general one of, you know, don't rough up someone <laughs> unnecessarily, don't use deadly force if you don't need to. But uh, another big thing was that he mandated, or in the bill, it was a man- mandating of national databases for a lot of police brutality and a lot of police statistics yeah. that we don't have national databases on, which is like a huge that's a huge goal right there. I think a lot of people have been discussing that for a long time. It's kind of sad that in 2020, if we want to know how many people have been shot by the police, we have to go to the Washington Post database or like Tampa Bay Times database. There's no national database that we can kind of look at and evaluate and figure out what the trends are. So it's also addressing data. You know, they could end qualified immunity that they could easily do. You know, that's that's something Although, where the Congress has the power to kind of try to counterbalance what the Supreme Court has laid out when it comes to qualified immunity. Although Tim Scott called that a poison pill, and I just thought that was a little over the top. I have a lot of respect for Tim Scott. Um, I think that he's certainly one of the more reputable uh, Republicans in the Senate. But to hear him say that, I, it just struck me as very strange that you, like, it, it it becomes quite easy. I mean, just don't violate people's constitutional rights. Um, don't don't give officers a free pass. 
to do so. Um, and then obviously you probably need to tackle some questions of uh, unionization um, and the role that the police unions play in protecting uh, bad cops, for lack of a better word. Um, yeah, it was it was strange strange for me to see Tim Scott react that way because it's it, from my perspective, you look at somebody like Justin Amash, who's very much a constitutional conservative. For him, this is like a no brainer. Obviously, yeah. we should we should the, any public servant shouldn't be shouldn't be automatically immune from um, from liability because of the position that they hold. I mean, there are best practices, and if you break those and commit illegal acts, you should still be subject to the law. Um, so yeah, I don't know what your take was. Did you see that Tim Scott said that? Did it strike you as strange? I know you you've written about this nationally. Yeah, that uh, I I didn't see that. I mean, I I knew it wasn't in his bill, so I knew he hadn't um, you know put that in, which is again strange. I think he is kind of going on the edge and saying, oh, Democrats don't want to support this because they don't want to put a win in the R column, which is true, but it's also true that he did not take up most of the stuff that. Uh, was mentioned by Justin Amash in his version of the bill in the House, where he's talking about qualified immunity, no-knock raids, you know, actual, like, legit stuff <laughs> that could make a huge difference tomorrow. Um, I know a lot of this stuff really was, like, setting the data reporting, some guidelines, no chokeholds. I don't know. I think th that is very symbolic. Um, look, we're not going to find answers coming out of Washington, D.C. I think, you know, we've uh, we don't have to repeat ourselves there. But hey, at least there is an attempt. Who knows what's going to happen here uh, the next couple of months? I'm not. I'm not really hopeful that there's going to be anything meaningful that comes out of D.C. I think you are seeing more reforms yeah. at the local level. You're seeing them in the states, and you know, police understand a lot of the stuff that's happening, and that's why you kind of you have to feel for people who are legitimate police officers who aren't the ones who are, you know, going around using deadly force. The, these are the ones who are trying to make their communities safer. Um, but that's the thing is you got a couple of bad guys, they're going to paint your entire profession as bad. And you got to get to in front of that. You know, that's something that you have to do. There's a reputational issue here, PR issue. That's a big deal. And especially if you instill fear in certain neighborhoods and just because I happen to grow up black I have to talk to my parents about what I'm supposed to do when the police come I mean that's terrible and that's not what you want so it's as much a cultural thing as it is sort of policies and guidelines yeah there's a lot that can be said there um I think yeah we're, we're going in a good direction and that we're discussing stuff I I w would have hoped there would have been more substantive stuff kind of at the well, at the very front of what had happened with George Floyd yeah, I mean, you bring up no-knock rates, which I feel is just like a should be a no-brainer in terms of a, a practice that is not used. So here's um, a. I actually I got feedback from a friend of mine who, um, you know, works at a law enforcement agency. I'm trying to not be too specific, <laughs> um, and he told me, sorry, it's a he. He told me that these no-knock raids, when they are used, and I've read this in other articles, they are used mostly in drug cases. And essentially the idea is that if you announce yourself and knock on the door and give people time, then they have time to flush evidence down the toilet and get rid of stuff. Um, that's not a legitimate reason, I think. And I think you would agree of why no. you should have these. Um, it's kind of, that's been instilled in their training. So they've been trained, all the police officers have been trained that we use these warrants because we don't want people destroying evidence. 
Well, yeah. Okay. See, the, the, the problem with that is, and this is especially true in states where firearms ownership is more prominent, you're then putting the onus on the citizen to, in a matter of a split second, differentiate whether or not the people coming through the door are, are good or bad. Yeah. And so there are these situations where I believe there was one in Indiana where they executed a no-knock raid. The guy had a firearm and he killed the officers as they were basically coming through the door, um, as you would any intruder if you have family. Um, I don't know the specifics of the case. Um, I mean, there are instances where they no-knock raid and get the wrong house. Um, so I, I don't know whether it was a drug-related charge or whatever. And I think and with the, he, Bri the Brianna Taylor one, which is the one that yeah. um, is still getting a lot of play, there was actually plainclothes policemen that were putting this uh, warrant out, no-knock raid. So you're sleeping in your bed middle of the night. Police officers knock down your door with guns telling you to come out. And they're not wearing uniforms. They're just, they have guns drawn, and they're yeah. wearing their normal clothes. Um, excuse me. <laughs> you know what I would yeah. do. I know what you would do. <laughs> Come on. Well, yeah, and that's the thing. And, and so I, I believe this case in Indiana moved up the, the court system, and they basically determined that the, 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 the resident was not at fault because how could he know, how was he supposed to know whether or not the people coming through the door were good or bad. If they don't yeah. identify themselves, they essentially become fair game. And I think that if you're a citizen, no knock raise should be problematic from that perspective. But if you're an officer, I mean, talk about increased risk. Like you're gonna go through the door, you have no idea what's waiting on the other end. Um, and then you add in the factor that you're that a civilian has to make a split second decision whether or not to return fire uh just like you can see the, the the pool of bad incentives just kind of mixing together to create really toxic scenarios so uh i mean uh, for me it's like guys that, that is low-hanging fruit let's at least put that into the mix of things that should not be done anymore yeah uh, and I, I will say um you know I, I don't do this often but to defend the police this is something that judges have signed up uh signed off on so in, in most circumstances, it's not just police going willy-nilly. I mean, they're obviously asking for them. But judges who are supposed to be upholding the Constitution, they're the ones who are signing them. You know, and you, you sort yeah. of, you also need that change of mindset amongst judges who most of the time come from, you know, uh, the office of the prosecutor. You know, that's what a lot of these judges are. That's They're obviously going to be very one-sided towards justice. But... That's that's a huge issue, too. So then we're talking about the whole judicial system, everything related to law enforcement. And look, there's a ton of people who study criminal justice. You know, is this not like a huge topic there? What's going on there? Where are all these scholars? Um, it seems as if all this is kind of thrown out there. And I think, and again, I'm never in the, the position of defending police officers generally, but if you are going to have a police force... You know, let's mm -hmm. at least give them good laws to execute. That's why having the drug war and giving just even more of a pretext for people to to have to talk to police, that's a huge issue as well. Well, yeah, I mean, you it's very easy to create a hypothetical situation where if you just simply stopped arresting people for silly things like cannabis um, or even drug possession of any kind, in my opinion, 
uh, you wouldn't have a lot of these scenarios. You think of a no-knock raid, you have police coming through the door because they suspect that, a, that an individual has, uh, let's say, I don't know, a pound of cannabis um, in their home or whatever it is. A pound, jeez. Okay. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I even went up, up, up to the higher threshold of like what someone could have that would be considered problematic. Um, that person fires back. There's a, a firefight and an exchange between the, between a resident and law enforcement. Usually somebody um, is killed. Uh, maybe multiple parties are killed. And it was all over the fact that he had the wrong type of plant in his house. It's like, guys, come on. This I'd is, love to see not... the I'd love to see the data on if there are these abuses of police power in places like Colorado and California, where they have legalized cannabis I, it might be similar to canada in that you almost have more enforcement of these rules because now you have even more rules oh you have x number of cannabis plants or like yeah you know you have this so maybe in those states i don't know if too many studies have been done on that you know or, or do we have more instances of no-knock raids or you know arrests or, or whatever i think that'd be very interesting to see yeah i don't i don't know the information on that to my knowledge the no-knock raid side of things does not exist in canada i, I can't i i've never heard of an example of it happening anybody and home I, eh? anybody home <laughs> yeah excuse me sir please hey, can you please open the door hey buddy can you get your uh your your hockey stick there out of the door we're just trying to get in yeah <laughs> No, exactly. So, uh, so yeah, uh, yeah, it raises some good questions, though. It does. And, uh, you know, we've got a couple other topics here that have landed on the desk uh, here at the Consumer Choice Radio Studio. You are listening here to our program on the Big Talker 1067 FM every Saturday morning at 10. One thing that I wanted to talk about, David, because this is um, sort of making its way up and down uh, East Coast, West Coast, all over the question of statues, the Confederacy and how we honor our past. Um, so there's a lot of things that have been happening. Maybe you are in a yes. town or in a city where you've had statues toppled. Maybe you've been in a situation uh, in the last couple of weeks or days where you've heard of commemorative plaques that have been taken down or things have been vandalized. I mean, we are, we are in a, a very strange kind of uh, <laughs> time when people are, are basically taking all of these statues and deciding you know, sort of by mob rule, which ones will stand and which ones won't, uh, which is kind of crazy to see. I, I don't think no matter your your stance on any statues, usually most of the time, if it's a large mob in the street deciding something, usually doesn't end up well. No, no, it no, it doesn't. And there are better ways um, in many instances to go about actually like fixing some of these problems. I mean, it makes me it makes me think immediately of the one topic of Confederate uh, of, of army bases named after Confederate generals, um, which we actually have a clip on. So we'll play that. And then I'd love, we'll chat about army bases and then go down the list of, I think, I mean, for me, those are the most obvious that need to be changed. And then we can go down the, the where there may be more nuance. That And let's look at the unique heritage of these symbols, starting with the fact that there are a lot more than you might expect. The Southern Poverty Law Center found some 1,500 Confederate memorials across the country. More than 700 of them are statues and monuments, and 10 U.S. military bases are named for Confederate officers. Think about that. There are U.S. military bases named for Confederate officers, and they were the enemy. They killed 
US soldiers. That's like finding out that Nancy Kerrigan named her child Tonya Harding. <laughs> Why would you do that? That's a weird choice. <laughs> and tributes to the Confederacy are everywhere in the South, and notably some in the North do that. And let's look... So, David, you, you, you don't win any favor um, by bringing a John Oliver clip to the table, but... <laughs> I know, I know, but I did think it was particularly good. Um, and it resonates with me because I am not, I'm, I, when it comes to this conversation, I am an outsider. Um, but it does strike me as strange that in a war that was um, over something so horrible and was waged by, by people who would be defined as, as uh, treasonous um, in many senses, that you would name military installations after these treasonous um, individuals. And I mean, the thing that strikes me as, as so strange is that it's quite easy to name these bases after people who are worthy of honor and worthy of having their name on these bases. I mean, the one example that I brought up was uh, Charles Chibity, who was a, a Native American code talker who was instrumental in um, various uh, victories in Europe. Um, name a base after someone like that. I mean, who exemplifies the American idea of defeating fascism um, rather than having names on bases for people who were defending slavery. For me, that seems like a no-brainer. Uh, again, admittedly, I am the outsider in this conversation because I'm not um, from the South. And so... Uh, it's, it's something that seems completely foreign to me, but it just does seem like there are some really easy ways to, uh, to use the, the process of naming a base to honor Americans who are truly deserving of it. Well, there, there are a couple of statues in Quebec uh, to the Patriot of 1837 who fought against uh, the centralized British crown, but that's a, another debate and <laughs> an issue. Yeah, I, I'm definitely. I mean, I'm I'm open to Fort Osowski if anybody wants to open that up. Um, I don't think there are too many skeletons in the closet, but I don't know. I haven't looked at my Twitter history in a while. Yeah, this is you know it's always been very strange. I was obviously an immigrant to the South, and you know you never really thought about it because you just kind of saw it in a while, and then you read or you you were in school and you talked about the Civil War and the Confederacy and and all of this. And I think what what a lot of my I guess classmates who you know were born and bred there and kind of have that ingrained with them, and even still today on Facebook. Uh, you know, for them, the Confederacy, I think nobody is is gung-ho on the Confederacy of 1861 and all of its goals and slavery and everything, but I think a lot of people cling to it because it has to do with Southern pride, you know, and that's this very strange idea, but it is true. Southerners are frankly different from a lot of people north of the Mason-Dixon line. There's there's absolutely no qualms about that. That's very true. Different dialects, different ways of drinking tea, different uh, activities people like to do. It's just a, it's a bit different. However, yeah. the problem is that people have been clinging to these statues, to symbols, to flags, and they don't really have anything else. And, and that's where you know, but you just either have, you know, what was in your history book on the table or you have like, oh, you know, this guy's wearing a got the Confederate flag is proud of being Southern heritage, not hate, as they say. Yeah. So what I mean, you've written on this a little bit, like what are what is that way forward? What are what what should be those symbols that that 
um, encapsulate Southern pride that don't obviously have history, don't have it, don't have that clear tie to the things that nobody should be proud about. Yeah, and, and this is uh, an article David is referring to. We'll put in the show notes, um, one of which was published in Expat Alachans, uh, which is like sort of literary journal, and another one in the Queen City Nerve, which is like the alt weekly uh, based in Charlotte. And the idea is that, you know, there's plenty of stuff to be proud of. There's a lot of people who have been great cultural icons, entrepreneurs, people who've actually gone above and beyond and, and were able to make something of themselves and actually enriched a lot of people. You know, it was um, a lot of the monuments that you see to the Confederacy, you know, these were not built in 1866. You know, a lot of these things were built because the ancestors or the, I guess, uh, what's after ancestors? Your, your kids. Descendants? Descend I, so the descendants of a lot of the Confederate soldiers and things, you know, they have these organizations, sons of Confederate veterans, daughters of Confederate veterans and stuff. So they put together money like in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s to build a lot of these things, you know, sort of because they, they were in that lost cause, you know, mentality and were trying to, I don't know, throw some uh, some accolades to these people. But, you know, there's so much more that, to celebrate. And there's a couple that I mentioned in the article that I noticed in my own hometown uh, Warren C. Coleman was like the richest African-American in the entire country at the time, in the year 1900. And he was right there in North Carolina. He built the first textile mill that was just um, owned, operated, managed, and staffed by African-Americans, which is huge. You know, you're, you're less than 40 years That's outside incredible. of slavery, and you're able to build this. And he was, at the time, a millionaire. So you think of inflation. <laughs> Lordy. And I think there's there's so much more that we can do there. And I, I, I definitely see that today amongst, um, you know, definitely a lot of older people. You know, there's been a lot of debates within NASCAR and the, the Confederate flag at racist. You see that amongst older people who just haven't had, you know, a, a kind of uh, a more of critical understanding of history. And really for them, they view it as, oh, yeah, I'm just celebrating Southern pride. But there's so much more you can do. Maybe it's going to take a new flag. I particularly love the flag of the state of South Carolina. It's a big yes. palm tree, and it's a big moon. I think it's beautiful. It's one of the best flags in the Union. I would proudly fly that, I think, more than anything else. I think I think you may be onto something there. I think it may be the best flag. Um, it's almost, in, well, I think Colorado and South Carolina are on the, about the same. Um, yeah. I guess California, but I just detest california so much with the bear on it that i don't yeah i mean <laughs> california would california's flag should be moved to like oregon then it would be cool if it was just like um i don't know if it was just a, a picture of jim carrey or something so you put a can <laughs> canadian on a california flag but somebody's a <laughs> comedian who's been in movies you know so that would be easier to rally around yeah there we go yeah uh, yeah i mean the thing the thing about these statues when people are like well it's it's like it's heritage it's not hate I can only imagine what it would be like to be an African American in the South and to look at some of these symbols and to know what that particular person who's being memorialized stood for. And then not ask yourself questions of like, whoa, wait, what? Like, why, why do we have that giant statue of a Confederate general in the, in the town square? Like, that's really uncomfortable. I mean, I'll never know what it's like to be in that position, um, but I can imagine how 
I mean, awkward is, is I think an understatement. Um, but for lack of a better word, awkward and uncomfortable, that would be to just be like, okay, well, the town that I was, the town that I was born in, the town that I am as much from as anyone else here has this statue to someone who defended slavery to the death. Um, yeah, that's, that's uncomfortable. And that's very, very strange. And in, in my courses at school, you know, I, I went to a school that was pretty diverse. I think, you know, student body was like 30% black, 25% Hispanic, the rest were um, white bumpkins, like me. And, you know, we, we would talk about obviously the Civil War, the Confederacy, and these kind of things. But I think even then, there just wasn't this, this kind of critical um, nature that you could change stuff. I don't know if I'm making that point enough. But you know, things exist around you, buildings, names, flags, especially when you're in school and you're in high school, you don't have that kind of revolutionary fervor just yet. I think a lot of people get that in university. So I think for, for a lot of people, especially sort of my, my black friends in school, you know, they never, it, they were never at least vociferous about it. Maybe that's because you're in a minority environment. You know, if everybody is all in, on uh, still wearing the Confederate flag. And, you know, people had it at parties and people had it in the back of their truck and, you know, on their license plate and stuff like that. Maybe you're more reluctant to speak out. Uh, maybe there just isn't this narrative of criticism that I think is definitely necessary and is very present today. You know, I think um, if we can make a small transition to talking about NASCAR and what's happening there a little bit. You have mm -hmm. Bubba Wallace, who's the kind of first full-time black driver in many, many years. Um, the first driver, Wendell Scott, actually, he won one race, and they actually refused to score it as a win for him. They, like, actually gave the win to the white guy. Um, you know, they made up some stupid reason because they thought the fans Jeez. would just go insane if a black driver won. Um, and that's, like, back in the 40s. But, you know, this has been around a long time. And for Bubba Wallace, he, he is someone who... African-American driver, and, you know, he kind of grew up and had that around. But, you know, he was always just interested in, in driving and, and being the best and wasn't really the most versed in a lot of the criticisms. You know, maybe he just didn't take an interest in that. And then as soon as the last couple of, of weeks and months have kind of taken its course, you know, he became more cognizant of everything and kind of it lit this fire under him. So a lot of people who know nothing about NASCAR tune in, see Bubba Wallace doing interviews, and like, oh, you know, here he is, the activist driver. You know, if you saw him three months ago, he didn't say anything like this. He didn't weigh in. He's like, I'm a driver. This is what I do. A lot of people would ask him, you know, what's it like being the only black driver? He he, he wouldn't really make that his stand. He said, look, I'm here to, to drive, to win, to, you know, to be the best that I can. I'm not trying to be the best black guy. I'm trying to be the best driver. And I think a lot of the moments kind of pushed him forward. And, you know, unfortunately, with a lot of the things that have happened over the course of the last week, um, it's been it's been bad to see because then you have people in the alt-right and everyone else who are just attacking him because of this uh, noose incident that some of you mm -hmm. may have heard about. So, yeah. Well, yeah, and now people will attach nefarious reasons for it happening. Oh, so even the, bu the Bubba Smollett, um, so uh, Jesse yeah. Smollier, or uh, Jesse Smollett was, he's this actor in Chicago, part of this show, I don't even remember what the name of the show is anymore, um, but was it Empire? I think it was Empire. I so he, was, he was yeah. an actor on this show, and then basically staged this thing where Trump supporters found him at night, threw a noose on him, and threw bleach in his face or something, and it turns out he probably made all of it up, it was a hoax. 
and people are kind of accusing Bubba of doing the same thing, which is not at all true because he actually never even saw um, the noose in question. He was just told about it um, later, like, hey, you know, we, we yeah. by the way, someone found this on the crew. It's not as if he took it and ran with it. He was just kind of forced in that position. And then what do you do when that happens to you? You know, if you just sit there silent, people are going to assume that you're just complacent. So I, I probably yeah, I mean, you speak out based on the available information at the time, um, because he did. Uh, I believe it was the FBI who investigated and determined that it wasn't it, it wasn't actually a noose. Um, it was related to something with the garage and pulling down the garage door. So I, all 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 things beyond my knowledge. Um, they determined that it wasn't what people thought it was. And it looks like cooler heads have prevailed um, in that sense. But I, I don't blame him for reacting based on the knowledge. Oh, but man, had. social media is toxic. Social media yeah. is toxic. And those of you who are not on social media and are not privy to all the debates that happen on places like Twitter and Facebook, just be happy. You're good. <laughs> you are saved from much stress and uh, undue pressures in your life. Yes, yeah, count yourself lucky because it is a dumpster fire out there. Yeah, it, I mean, obviously, these are great platforms for getting your information out there, um, you know, trying to compete with everyone else who might be in your field, and you're trying to gain an edge, or maybe you're just having conversations. I mean, there's a, one thing a couple of weeks ago where it was some guy, I think, who's an engineering student, reached out to like a couple of the... Uh, CEOs of rocket companies, including Elon Musk, and just ask like, hey, what's the, you know, some formula, nothing that I would ever understand. And like both Elon Musk and the guy who's the head of Virgin Galactic and the guy who's in charge of uh, Jeff Bezos's rocket company, they all weighed in and were like, oh yeah, here it is. This is why we have this, you know, tunicular force or no idea. And it's like, could you imagine that happening 20 years ago, writing to a letter to a, a CEO and, and getting instantaneous response? Like, no way. Yeah. I mean, that is the incredible side of things is that connection where you can actually be connected to someone you would otherwise have no interaction with and have no ability to interact with. Um, so there is some positive there um, for sure. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, you know what, one good reason why we are still, as Consumer Choice Center, going to defend social networks. And the problem that happens, again, is that people might say things that people disagree with or don't like. And what are they going to do? They're going to run to the government and they're going to ask them to change Section 230 um, that would make platforms liable for the content that's on there. They're going to try to pass some regulation. Um, that that was one that Trump passed, an executive order, where he talked about figuring out what we can do against Twitter because they had been censoring some of his posts. I mean, this is dangerous territory. You don't want the government involved in setting these type of things and surely not in picking the winners and losers of which platforms rule or which ones don't. And and I think that there should be a new rule. So every time people on the left want the government to do something in regards to speech, they should have to say, I want Donald Trump to regulate social media companies. And every time people on the right want something to happen like that, they should have to say, I want AOC to regulate social media companies because that's really what you're saying. I mean, you're giving the keys to the Ferrari to your enemy by, I mean, yeah, you can think that the changing section 230 is going to be some, uh, some miracle policy for, 
so-called oppressed conservative voices online. Um, but you're giving the keys to the Ferrari to your opposition when they're in power. And how are they going to use that when they're in power? Um, I mean, the Obama era is a perfect encapsulation of that because for all sorts of things, Obama, in many senses, ruled by executive order and did things that you and I both criticize. But then you want to give those extraordinary powers to a man like Donald Trump? I don't think so. That's, that's part of the, the frightening world that we're living in now. And so you have to that everything you are your person to do um, is, is something that can be used and will be used by the president who is ultimately the one you didn't vote for down the road. The pendulum swings both ways, my friend. It sure does, yes. <laughs> uh, so there's uh, one article I would recommend to listeners. Um, this is by Jacob Siegel from Tablet Magazine. Um, the name of the article is The New Truth. When the moral imperative trumps the rational evidence, there's no arguing. Um, so this is very pertinent to a couple things we talked about today. A lot of stuff about uh, the New York Times and Washington Post, statues, debate. Um, essentially, he's, he's kind of making the point that, you know, how can we continue to have civilization if we can't figure out the ways that we can discuss things without people wanting to chop our heads off or report us to our bosses or use the government to try to, you know, make our speech illegal? Um, there's, there's a lot of great nuggets in this article. I definitely recommend it. It's a fairly long essay. Um, but I think it's very good. There's there's probably been a couple of these very good articles that I've seen in the last couple of weeks that I've I've really wanted to highlight and bring attention to, but it's just tough um, to do that. Are there any well, any articles it, or things that you'd recommend, David, that you got on your on your desk? So I mean, on that note, it's not an article, but it's a very interesting exchange. Um, so with well, let's call it cancel culture. Essentially, like the entirety of your life becomes a job interview. Um, and all of, let's say, the silly or dumb things you did in the past. Um, one perfect example of this is Rick Wilson, uh, who's an author who's involved with the Lincoln Project. He spent a lot of time raking people over the coals for their past uh, indiscretions, digging up things from uh, their social media accounts um, from when they were younger, when they nece weren't necessarily even adults, um, and and is kind of was one of like the leading crusaders in that charge. And then someone does a little digging on his social media, and I think it's from 2014. There's a picture. His wife and him are camping. They have a cooler that has the Confederate flag on it that says the South will rise again. And it's like, okay, well, I mean, you're fair game. These are the rules of the game now. Um, so I guess you're canceled. Uh, it's time for you to resign from all of your, your posts. You should give up your column. You should uh, resign from the positions that you have. Um, that's the standard that we've set. I mean, and I'm not excusing. I mean, for me, especially as an outsider, to see someone with a Confederate flag on a cooler and the South will rise again just seems like I don't want to hang out with that person. That, that's a bad person. The but, pendulum swings um, both ways, my friend. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's like, I mean, there are so many examples of this where like, um, I mean, we talked about this before. There was the, the one, uh, one young man who was raising money for charity. And then a reporter dug into his tweets from when he was 17 and he had 
retweeted a couple offensive jokes or said some offensive things when he was a minor and basically got this this young man uh, who was doing great work for charity essentially canceled and then somebody dug in on the reporter who wrote the story looked at his old tweets and then got him canceled got him fired from the newspaper that published the story and it's just like mutually assured cancellation everywhere um where i mean the the kid who never got facebook in high school is just a genius now that's crazy i, I know there's there's been a lot of these cases uh, and there's so many we can do a whole cancellation episode um <laughs> And I think one podcast that I'd recommend if people are interested, because I'm reading about this more, listening about it, is one called Block and Reported uh, by Katie Herzog and Jesse Single. Um, so this is actually an independent podcast that they do. I think Jesse Single's from New York Magazine, and Katie Herzog used to be at the Seattle Stranger, which is like a super awesome uh, alt-weekly, um, incredibly left-wing paper, no doubt, but she was kind of a, an outlier there. And they have a very good podcast where they usually just run through the examples of people who've been canceled or blocked and all these like social media, internet fights. And they actually do a lot of research and <laughs> figure out the backstories and stuff. So yeah, this is continuing. Um, there's a lot of things that will be happening in the next couple of weeks. And man, people just got to beware. The pendulum swings. It comes back. It'll swing back more ferociously than it was ever um, sort of passed your way. So this is the kind of stuff to look out for. Yeah, exactly. Those those who live in glass houses uh, mm. come to mind <laughs> for a lot of these people. Yeah, that's bad. And you know, we'll have a lot of more examples. But you know that that's uh, that's the game. Uh, that's the thing that we're playing in. That's why we're we're trying to focus a lot on consumer regulations and rules. And uh, you know, if we start inviting the government to try to police speech online even more than it already does, I think that's that's bad. And um, you know, you might think you're winning, but as David said, if uh, just imagine that Donald Trump is the one who's signing the order, <laughs> figuring out whether or not you're going to stay online. That doesn't look too pretty for a lot of people, much like if it was Bernie Sanders or AOC was signing the same bill. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, so I think um, there's a couple other things that uh, we wanted to get to this week. I don't know if we're going to have time. Uh, we're getting close here to the top of the hour, David, as far as I know, um, but I, I do want to be sure to recommend all of you to continue listening to us on consumerchoiceradio.com. You can always find all of the previous episodes that we've done there. We've got uh, videos, all the other interviews that we've done as well. I mean, we've got a good amount now. Um, you know, we're going up on 25 episodes. We've done it every single week since uh, the beginning of the year. Uh, we talked about all the masked debates. We talked about everything that was happening with the early pandemic uh, while we were in the mountains of Davos, Switzerland. Uh, we've been kind of thrown in every which direction, David, but I think uh, so far we've we've done pretty well, and I hope the, the audience uh, will continue listening. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for tuning in on the radio. Thank you for listening um, wherever you get your podcasts to Consumer Choice Radio. As always, follow us both on Twitter. Um, if you are using the podcast app, make sure you subscribe, rate, uh, rate the show. And give us feedback. If, uh, if there are guests you want to hear from, guests you liked and you want us to have them back, um, let us know. And we will uh, we'll do our best to meet consumer demand as we, uh, as we so passionately fight for uh, on a daily basis. And in the meantime, look out for the pendulum. It might swing your way. Yes. Chop off your own head. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. We'll talk to you soon. 
Yeah, have a good one. <laughs>